Okay, today is plant physiology. We're going to be looking at energy conservation and photosynthesis or harvesting sunlight. Photosynthesis is the fundamental basis of competitive success in green plants and the principal organ of photosynthesis in higher plants is the leaf. From the delicate pastel hues of early spring through the brilliant reds and oranges of autumn, foliage leaves are certainly one of the dominant features of terrestrial plants. A biologist's interest in leaves, however, goes far beyond their aesthetic quality. Biologists are interested in the structure of organs and how those structures are adapted to carry out effectively certain physiological and biochemical functions. Leaves provide an excellent demonstration of this structure-function relationship. While some leaves may be modified for special purposes, for example, tendrils, spines, and chloroparts, the primary function of leaves remains photosynthesis. In order to absorb light effect efficiently, a typical leaf presents a large surface area at approximately right angles to the incoming sunlight. From this perspective, the leaf may be viewed as a photosynthetic machine, superbly engineered to carry out photosynthesis efficiently in an extremely hostile environment. Photosynthesis occurs not only in eukaryotic organisms such as green plants and green algae, but also in prokaryotic organisms such as cyanobacteria and certain groups of bacteria. In higher plants and green algae, the reaction of photosynthesis occur in the chloroplast, which is, quite simply, an incredible thermodynamic machine. The chloroplast traps the radiant energy of sunlight and conserves some of it in stable chemical form. The reactions that accomplish these energy transformations are identified as the light-dependent reactions of photosynthesis. Energy generated by the light-dependent reactions is subsequently used to reduce inorganic carbon dioxide to organic carbon in the form of sugars. Both the carbon and the energy conserved in those sugars are then used to build the order and structure that distinguishes living organisms from their inorganic surroundings. The focus of this chapter is the organization of leaves with respect to the exploitation of light as the primary source of energy and its conversion to the stable chemical forms of ATP and NADPH by the chloroplast. We will discuss the structure of terrestrial plant leaves with respect to the interception of light, photosynthesis as the reduction of carbon dioxide to carbohydrates, the photosynthetic electron transport chain, its organization in the thylakoid membrane, and its role in generating reducing potential and ATP, and the use of herbicides that specifically interact with photosynthetic electron transport. Leaves are photosynthetic machines that maximize the absorption of light. The architecture of a typical higher plant leaf is particularly well suited to absorb light. Its broad laminar surface serves to maximize interception of light. In addition, the bifacial nature of the leaf allows it to collect incident light on the upper surface and diffuse, both scattered and reflected light, on the lower surface. Gross morphology is not, however, the only factor enhancing the interception of light. Internal cellular arrangements also play an important role. The anatomy of a typical dicotyledon dicotyledonous mesomorphic leaf is shown in figure 7.1a b. The leaf is sheathed with an upper and lower epidermis. The exposed surfaces of the epidermal cells are coated with a cuticle. The photosynthetic tissues are located between the two epidermal layers and are consequently identified as mesophyll tissues. The upper photosynthetic tissue generally consists of one to three layers of palisade mesophyll cells. Palisade cells are elongated cylindrical cells with the long axis perpendicular to the surface of the leaf. Below is the spongy mesophyll, so named because of the prominent air spaces between the cells. 
The shape of spongy mesophyll cells is somewhat irregular, but tends towards isodiametric. The plan of a monocotyledonous leaf is similar, except that it lacks the distinction between palisade and spongy mesophyll. Palisade cells generally have larger number of chloroplasts than spongy mesophyll cells. In leaves of camelop, for example, the chlorophyll concentration of the palisade cells is 1.5 to, to 2.5 times that of spongy mesophyll. The higher number of chloroplasts in the palisade cells no doubt reflects an adaptation to the higher fluence rates for photosynthetically active light, generally incident on the upper surfaces of the leaf. So the figures that we see are structures of the leaves in cross-sections. So a dicotyledonous leaf, Acer, from the maple, and a monocotyledonous leaf from Zia maize, or corn, and you can see the veins between them. Between them. So in a dicotinidalis, you can see a, a dual structure, almost like a lipid bilayer, where you have some vascular bundles and an epidermis with stomata breaking up these, this sandwich form. Whereas in a monocotinidalis leaf, shows two veins. So there's an upper epidermis that's built directly into the spongy mesophyll. So it's still a sandwich, but it does have more of an epidermis shape. And then it also has these hairs on it that are built in with spongy mesophyll and stoma. In spite of the relatively large number of chloroplasts in the palisade layers of a dicotum cotyledonous leaf, there's a significant proportion of the cell volume that does not contain chloroplasts. Because the absorbing pigments are confined to the chloroplast, a substantial amount of light may thus pass through the first cell layer without being absorbed. This has been called the sieve effect. Multiple layers of photosynthetic cells is one way of increasing the probability that photons passing through the first layer of cells will be intercepted by successive layers. The impact of the sieve effect on the efficiency of light absorption is, to some extent, balanced by factors that change the direction of the light path within the leaf. Light may first of all be reflected off the many surfaces associated with the cells. Second, light that is not reflected but passes between the aqueous volume of mesophyll cells and the air spaces that surround them, especially in the spongy mesophyll, will be bent by refraction. Third, light may be scattered when it strikes particles or structures with diameters comparable to its wavelengths. In the leaf cell, for example, both mitochondria and the grana structures within chloroplasts have dimensions between 500 and 1,000 nanometers similar to the wavelengths active in photosynthesis. Both organelles will scatter light. These three factors, reflection, refraction, and scattering, combine to increase the effective path length as light passes through the leaf. The longer light path increases the probability that any given photon will be absorbed by a chlorophyll molecule before it can escape from the leaf. Careful studies of the optical properties of leaves have shown that despite their scattering properties, palisade cells do not appear to absorb as much light as might be expected. That is to say, the palisade cells have a lower-than-expected efficiency of light attenuation. This is apparently because they also act to some extent as a light guide. 
Some of the incident light is channeled through the intracellular, spa intracellular spaces between the palisade cells in much the same way that light is transmitted by an optical fiber. It is probable that photosynthesis in the uppermost palisade layer is frequently light-saturated. Any excess light would be wasteful and could, in fact, give rise to photoinhibition and other harmful effects that we will discuss in more detail later. Thus, the increased transmission of light to the lower cell layers resulting from both scattering and the light guide effect would no doubt be advantageous by contributing to a more efficient allocation of photosynthetic energy throughout the leaf. Not all leaves are designated like the typical dichotomous mesomorphonic leaf described above. Leaves may be modified in many ways to fit particular environmental situations. Pine leaves, or needles, for example, are more circular in cross-section. Their capacity for light interception has been compromised in favor of reduced surface-to-volume ratio, a modification that helps combat desiccation when exposed to dry winter air. In other cases, such as dry land or desert species, the leaves are much thicker in order to provide for storage of water. In extreme cases, such as the cacti, the leaves have been reduced to thorns and the stem has taken over the dual function of water storage and photosynthesis. These and other modifications to leaf morphology will be discussed more fully in chapter 14 and 15. So we have a simplified diagram in illustrating optical properties of leaves for the redistribution of incoming light and maximum interception by chlorophyll. So you have an upper epidermis that then passes to a palisade mesophyll. And then underneath the palisade mesophyll, you have your spongy mesophyll. And then under that is your lower epidermis. Within the leaf mesophyll cells of plants, the chloroplast is the organelle that transforms light energy into ATP and NADPH to convert CO2 to sugars. The structures of a typical chloroplast was discussed in chapter five. ATP is synthesized by chemiosmosis, where NADPH is the product of a coupled electron transfer reaction in the chloroplast thylakoid membrane. The enzymatic reactions involved in the conversion of CO2 to sugars takes place in the chloroplast stroma. Photosynthesis is an oxidation reduction process. Although it may not be obvious at first glance, photosynthesis is fundamentally an oxidation reduction reaction. This can be seen by examining the summary equation for photosynthesis. 6CO2 plus 12H2O yields C6H12O6 plus CO2, 6O2 plus 6H2O. Here, photosynthesis is shown as a reaction between carbon dioxide and water to produce glucose, a six-carbon carbohydrate, or hexose. Although glucose is not the first product of photosynthesis, it is a common form of accumulated carbohydrate and provides a convenient basis for discussion. Note that equal molar quantities of CO2 and O2 are consumed and evolved respectively. This is convenient for the experimenter since it means that photosynthesis can be measured in the laboratory as either the uptake of CO2 or the evolution of O2. And this will be important for us as we're determining the health and efficiency of our pilot study. However, it is important to note that the ratio of CO2 fixed O2 evolved equals 1 only under conditions where photorespiration is 
We will discuss photorespiration and its impact on photosynthesis in more detail in Chapter 8. For simplicity, we can reduce equation 7.1 to CO2 plus 2H2O yields CH2O plus O2 plus H2O, where the term CH2O represents the basic building block of any carbohydrate. Equation 7.2 can be interpreted as a simple redox reaction, that is, a reduction of CO2 to carbohydrate, where H2O is the reductant and CO2 is the oxidant. But it might also be interpreted as hydration of carbon, e.g. carbohydrate, as it was in early studies of photosynthesis. How do we know that it is one and not the other? And why is it necessary to write the equation with two molecules of water as a reactant and one as product when one would appear to suffice? These equations can best be answered by reviewing some of the early studies on photosynthesis. One of the earliest clues to the redox nature of photosynthesis was provided by studies of C.B. Van Neel in 1920s. As a microbiologist, Van Neel was interested in the photosynthetic sulfur bacteria that use hydrogen sulfide as a reductant in place of water. Consequently, unlike algae and higher plants, the photosynthetic sulfur bacteria do not evolve oxygen. Instead, they deposit elemental sulfur according to the following equation, CO2 plus 2H2S yields CH2O plus 2S plus H2O. These sulfur bacteria are also the key ones that we look at in sepsis under wastewater treatment conditions. You can also write this as two partial reactions. 2H2S yields four electrons plus 4H plus 2S. CO2 plus 4E electrons plus 4H plus yields CH2O plus H2O. Equations 7.4 and 7.5 describe photosynthesis in the purple sulfur bacteria as a straightforward oxidation reduction reaction. C.B. Van Neel adopted a comparative biochemistry approach and argued that the mechanisms for oxygenic, or oxygen-evolving, photosynthesis in green plants and anoxygenic, or non-oxygen-evolving, photosynthesis in the sulfur bacteria both followed the general plan 2H2A plus CO2 yields 2A plus CH2O plus H2O. In this equation, A can represent either oxygen or sulfur depending on the type of photosynthetic organism. According to the equation 7.6, the O2 released in oxygenic photosynthesis would be derived from the reductant, water. Correct stoichiometry would therefore require the participation of four electrons and hence two molecules of water. A second important clue was provided by R. Hill, who in 1939 was first to demonstrate the partial reactions of photosynthesis in isolated chloroplasts. In Hill's experiments with chloroplasts, artificial electron acceptors such as ferrocyanide were used. Under these conditions, no CO2 was consumed and no carbohydrate was produced, but light-driven reduction of the electron acceptors was accompanied by O2 evolution. Four, Fe3 plus plus 2H2O yields 4Fe2 plus plus O2 plus 4H plus. Hill's experiments confirmed the redox nature of green plant photosynthesis and added further support for the argument that water was the source of evolved oxygen. Direct evidence for the latter point was finally provided by S. Rubin and M. Kaman in the early 1940s, 
Using either CO2 or H2O labeled with 18O, a heavy isotope of oxygen, they showed that the label appeared in the evolved oxygen only when supplied as water, not when supplied as C18O2. If the evolved O2 is derived from water, then two molecules of water must participate in the reduction of each molecule of CO2. Seems like it's also a good argument for why life wouldn't be on a second family tree, so to speak. That it has to be water interacting with light to create oxygen as the key form of, of metabolism. Because you couldn't get this with other chemicals, right? You wouldn't have nearly the same reactions. And it kind of goes along with the idea that there's nothing really special about the Earth, that we're, we're kind of um, average, like we're doing exactly what physical processes would be required on, on our planet. So based on these results, photosynthesis can be viewed as a photochemical reduction of CO2. The energy of light is used to generate strong reducing equivalents from H2O, strong enough to reduce CO2 to carbohydrate, these reducing equivalents are in the form of reduced NADP plus or NADPH plus H plus. Additional energy for carbon reduction is required in the form of ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is also generated at the expense of light. The principal function of the light-dependent reactions of photosynthesis is therefore to generate the NADPH and the ATP required for carbon reduction. This is accomplished through a series of reactions that constitute the photosynthetic electron transport chain. Okay. Photosynthetic electron transport. Photosystems are major components of the photosynthetic electron transport chain. The key to the photosynthetic electron transport chain is the presence of two multimolecular pigment protein complexes known as photosystem 1 and photosystem 2. Photosystem 1 contains of 18 distinct subunits, whereas photosystem 2 consists of 31 individual subunits. These two photosystems operate in series linked by a third multiprotein aggregate called the cytochrome complex. Overall, the effect of the chain is to extract low-energy electrons from water and, using light energy trapped by chlorophyll, raise the energy level of those electrons to produce a strong reductant NADPH. The composition, organization, and function of the photosynthetic electron transport chain have been an area of active study and rapid progress in recent years. This interest has led to the development of a variety of experimental methods for the study of PSI, PSI I'm sorry, PS1, PS2, and other large membrane protein aggregates. Most significant among these are techniques for the removal of the complexes from the thylakoid membranes by first solubilizing the membrane with a range of detergents. The different photosystems or classes of molecular aggregates can then be separated from each other by centrifugation. If the detergents and the conditions under which the treatments are carried out are carefully selected, not only can complexes be isolated, but also individual complexes can be further subdivided into smaller aggregates that retain varying parts of the overall activity. These purified complexes or subunits may then be analyzed for their composition with respect to pigments, protein, and other components, or assayed for their capacity to carry out specific photochemical or electron transport reactions. Most recently, this approach has led to the crystallization of PS2 and PS1 reaction centers. 
By exposing these crystals to x-rays and analyzing the dif resulting diffraction patterns, scientists have been able to determine the precise three-dimensional location of all the pigment molecules and redox components of PS1 and PS2 reaction centers. The Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Diesenhofer, Michel, and Huber in 1987 for the first successful crystallization and x-ray diffraction of bacterial reaction centers. This represents the second Nobel Prize given for research in photosynthesis. So we have a linear representation of the photosynthetic electron transport chain. So you can see an arrangement of complexes. Starting from the left, you have H2O that's complexed with two electrons, resulting in half O2 and 2H+. That complex is then moved to the PS2, where light hits it, and then moved to a cytochrome, which is then moved to PS1 in contact with more light, which then complexes with the split water molecule and hydrogen to create NADPH H plus and NADP plus 2H plus. And that NADPH plus H plus is our strong redu reductant. Such fractionation studies have revealed that PS1 and PS2 each contain several different proteins together with a collection of chlorophyll and carotenoid molecules that absorb photons. The bulk of the chlorophyll in photosystem functions as antenna chlorophyll. The association of chlorophyll with specific proteins forms a number of different chlorophyll protein complexes, which can be separated by gel electrophoresis and identified on the basis of their molecular mass and absorption spectrum. The core antenna for photosystem 2, for example, consists of two chlorophyll proteins, known as CP43 and CP47. These two CP complexes each contain 20 to 25 molecules of chlorophyll A. The core antenna chlorophyll A absorb light but do not participate directly in photochemical reaction. However, protein-bound antenna chlorophylls lie very close together, such that the excitation energy can easily pass between adjacent pigment molecules by inductive resonance or radiationless energy transfer. I think I may have to review inductive resonance. So I don't remember what that means. The energy of absorbed photons thus migrates through the antenna complex, passing from one chlorophyll molecule to another, until it eventually arrives at the reaction center. Each reaction center consists of a unique chlorophyll A molecule that's thought to present as a dimer. This reaction center chlorophyll plus associated proteins and redox carriers are directly involved in light-driven redox reaction. The reaction center chlorophyll is, in effect, an energy sink. It is the longest wavelength, thus the lowest energy absorbing chlorophyll in the complex. Because the reaction center chlorophyll A is the site of the primary photochemical redox reaction, it is here that the light energy is actually converted to chemical energy. The reaction center chlorophyll A of PS1 and PS2 are designated as P700 and P680, respectively. These designations identify the reaction center chlorophyll A, or pigment P, with an absorption maximum at either 700 nanometers for PS1 or 680 nanometers for PS2. Tightly associated with the reaction centers 
P680 and P700 are core antenna complexes. CP47 and CP43 are the core antenna of PS2, whereas CP1 is the core complex of PS1. There are two additional chlorophyll protein complexes depicted in close association with PS2 and PS1. This is the light harvesting complex 2, LHCII, and the light harvesting complex 1, LHCI, respectively. LHCII is associated with PS2 and LHCI is associated with PSI. As their names imply, the light harvesting complexes function as extended antenna systems for harvesting additional light energy. LHCI and LHCII together contain as much as 70% of the total chloroplast pigment, including virtually all of chlorophyll B. LHCI is relatively small and has a chlorophyll A to B ratio of about 4 to 1 and appears rather tightly bound to the core photosystem. LHCII, on the other hand, contains 50 to 60% of the total chlorophyll and with a chlorophyll A to B ratio of about 1.2, most of the chlorophyll B. LHCII also contains most of the xanthophyll. The function of the light harvesting complexes and the core antenna are to absorb light and transfer this energy to the reaction centers. I wonder if xanthophyll is actually the precursor to xanthan gum that's used as a stabilizer for food products. So they give us a lovely organization of the photosynthetic electron transport system in the thylakoid membrane. And we have what looks like a lipid bilayer with four major protein aggregates. From left to right, we see PS2 first, and that has our light harvesting complex 2, our CP47, CP43, uh, D2, D1, magnesium, or I'm sorry, manganese, and a P680 protein complex, kind of all smooshed up there together. And that's ditching out um, H2O that then becomes O2 plus 4H plus. And that 4H plus then gets shuttled to what looks like the far right, which is an enzymatic protein complex, a, a proton pump, that then pushes it out to the stroma side of the, of the lipid bilayer. In between the first and second aggregates, so from moving from left to right, Right after PS2, we have a cytochrome complex. The cytochrome complex looks like it's moving um, PQ and proteins in and out of the lipid bilayer through an iron sulfate mix with a cytochrome F and a cytochrome B6 complex uh, chucking out electrons. So then you have on the lumen side, the creation of a PC and that PC moves through the third aggregate, which is our PS1 and that is through the P700 light harvesting collection center, um, and then dishes out FD and NADP plus and NADPH. So that's our primary reducer, that's our energy pump right there. And then um, to equalize on the stroma side, you have all of that H plus, the extra H plus moving through that protein proton pump um, generating an ADP plus to ATP complex for energy. The principal advantage of associating a single reaction center with a large number of light harvesting and core antenna chlorophyll molecules is to increase efficiency in the collection and utilization of light energy. 
Even in bright sunlight, it is unlikely that an individual chlorophyll molecule would be struck by a photon more than a few times every second. Since events at the reaction center occur within a microsecond timescale, any reaction center that depended on a single molecule of chlorophyll for its light energy would no doubt lie idle much of the time. Thus, the advantage of a photosystem is that while the reaction center is busy processing one photon, other photons are being intercepted by the antenna molecules and funneled to the reaction center. This increases the probability that as soon as the reaction center is free, more excitation energy is immediately available. The efficiency of energy transfer through the light harvesting complexes and the core antenna complexes to the reaction is very high. Only about 10% of the energy is lost. Thus, it's important to appreciate that LH LCH1 and LHC2 are not necessarily absolute requirements for photosynthetic electron transport under light-saturated conditions. That is, under conditions when light is not limiting. Rather, the light harvesting complexes enhance photosynthetic efficiency under low light, that is, under conditions where light limits photosynthesis. In fact, photosynthetic organisms modulate the structure and function of the light harvesting complexes in response to changes in radiance. This will be discussed in more detail in Chapter 14. In addition, LHCII has an important role in the dynamic regulation of energy distribution between the photosystems, which will be discussed in more detail in Chapter 13. A schematic of the photosynthetic electron transport chain depicting the arrangement of PS1, PS2, and the cytochrome B6 over F complex in the thylakoid membrane is presented in the figure we just described. A fourth complex, the CF0 to CF1 coupling factor, or ATP synthase, is also shown. All four complexes are membrane-spanning integral membrane proteins with a substantial portion of their structure buried in the hydrophobic lipid bilayer. Note that the orientation of the complex and their individual constituents is not random. Specific polypeptide regions will be oriented towards the stroma or lumen side, respectively. Such a vectorial arrangement of proteins is characteristic of all energy-transducing membranes, if not all membrane proteins, and is an essential element of their capacity to conserve energy through chemiosmosis. So just as a note, this looks very similar to us. It's a different cycle, and we'll go through that, but um, this is how you make energy. So it's a uh, value is an understanding that you kind of need the same chemical elements over and over again to produce this single pathway for energy mechanisms, which again argues against a second tree of life theory. Although PQ reduction and its co-cominant proteation, protonation occurs on the stromal side of the thylakoid membrane, the oxidation of PQH2 by the cytochrome B6F complex, or CYT-B6F, requires the diffusion of PQH2 from the stromal side to the lumen side of the thylakoid membrane. It is this arrangement that gives rise to the proton gradient necessary for ATP synthesis. This aspect of the electron transport chain will be revisited later. Another consequence of the vectorial arrangement is that oxidation of water and reduction of NADPU plus occur on opposite sides of the thylakoid membrane. Water is oxidized and protons accumulate on the lumen side of the membrane where they contribute to the gradient which drives ATP synthesis. However, both NADPH and ATP are produced in the stroma where they are used in the carbon reduction cycle or other cortisol activity. 
Photosystem II oxidizes water to produce oxygen. Electron transport actually begins with the arrival of excitation energy at the Photosystem II reaction center chlorophyll, P680, which is located near the luminal side of the reaction center. As illustrated in Figure 7.7, this excitation energy is required to change the redox potential of P680 from about plus 0.8 electron volts to negative 0.4 electron volts for P680, the excited form of P680. There's a star in there. Um, interestingly enough, this is also similar to the excitation energy required for uh, nerve transfer in people. So you have to drop the potential to be able to reset the nerve to be able to receive additional stimulation. That's how our, that's how our electrical stimulus in our muscles and brains work. As a consequence of this initial endergonic excitation process, P680 star can rapidly transfer electrons exergonically to phaophyton or phao. Phaophyton, considered the primary electron acceptor in PS2, is a form of chlorophyll A in which the magnesium ion has been replaced by two hydrogens. Since its initial oxidation of P680 is light dependent, it's called a photooxidation event, which results in the formation of P680 plus and phaon minus, a charge separation. Note that the energy of one photon results in the release of one electron, which is consistent with the Einstein-Stokes law. This charge separation effectively stores light energy as redox potential energy and represents the actual conversion of light energy to chemical energy. It's essential that this charge separation be stabilized by the rapid movement of the electron from P680 at the lumen side of the PS2 reaction center to an electron acceptor molecule localized at the stromal side of the PS2 reaction center. If the electron were permitted to recombine with the P680+, there would be no forward movement of electrons, the energy would be wasted, and ultimately, carbon could not be reduced. The role of the reaction proteins D1 and D2 is to bind and orient specific redox carriers of the PS2 reaction center in such a way as to decrease the probability of charge recombination between P680 plus and Phao minus. How does this happen? First, within picoseconds, Phaophyton passes one electron on to a quinone electron acceptor called QA, resulting in the formation of P680 plus Phao QA minus complex. Now, the PS2 reaction center is considered to be closed, that is, it is unable to undergo another photooxidation event. On a slower timescale of microseconds, the electron is passed from QA to plastoquinone PQ, resulting in the formation of P680 plus PhaoQA. PQ is a quinone that binds transiently to a binding site, QB, that is on the stromal side of the D1 reaction center protein. The reduction of PQ to plastoquinol, or PQH2, decreases its affinity for the binding site on the D1 polypeptide. The plastoquinol is thus released from the reaction center to be replaced by another molecule of PQ. PQH2 diffuses from the QB site and becomes part of the PQ pool present in the thylakoid membrane. Since PQ requires two electrons to become fully reduced to PQH2, reduction at the QB site is considered a two-electron gate. Second, the initial charge separation is further stabilized because P680 plus is a very strong oxidant, perhaps the strongest known in biological systems, and is able to extract the electrons from water. 
Thus, P680 plus is rapidly reduced, again within picoseconds, to P680, resulting in the formation of P680 QA. Now the PS2 reaction center is said to be open, that is, it's ready to receive another excitation. On a bright, sunny summer day, the photon flux to which the leaf can be exposed may reach 2,000 micromole photons per meter squared second. This means that about 10 to the 19 charge separations per second may occur over a leaf surface area of one centimeter squared. The electrons that reduce P680 plus are most immediately supplied by a cluster of four manganese ions associated with a small complex of proteins called the oxygen-evolving complex. As the name implies, the oxygen-evolving complex is responsible for splitting, or the oxidation, of water and the consequent ev evolution of molecular oxygen. The OEC is located on the lumen side of the thylakoid membrane. The OEC is bound to the D1 and D2 proteins of the PS2 reaction center, and the function stables, stabilizes the manganese cluster. It also binds chlorine, minus, which is necessary for the water-splitting function, according to the equation 2H2-2O2 plus 4H plus plus 4E. According to this equation, the oxidation of two moles of water produces one mole of oxygen, four moles of protons, and four moles of electrons. It has been determined that only one PS2 reaction center in OEC is involved in the release of a single oxygen molecule. Thus, in order to complete the oxidation of two water molecules and expel four protons and produce a single molecule of O2, the PS2 reaction center must be closed and then open four times. This means that PS2 must utilize the energy of four photons in order to evolve one molecule of O2. Experiments in which electron transport was driven by extremely short flashes of light, short enough to excite essentially one electron at a time, have demonstrated that the OEC has capacity to store charges. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Capturing light. Each excitation of P680 is followed by the withdrawal of one electron from the manganese cluster, which stores the residual positive charge. When four positive charges have accumulated, the complex oxidizes two molecules of water and releases the product oxygen molecule. As a consequence, organisms containing PS2 and OEC exhibit oxygenic photosynthesis, that is, a photosynthetic process that generates molecular oxygen. Well, I assume that we're going to learn about non-oxygenic photosynthesis, which I don't believe we've talked about yet. And here it is. However, not all photosynthetic organisms are oxygenic. Photosynthetic bacteria are anoxygenic, that is, photosynthesis in these prokaryotes does not generate molecular O2. Why is this? First, photosynthetic purple bacteria such as Rhodopseudomonas viridis and Rhodobacter spiroides contain only one reaction center. The specialized bacterial reaction center rather than two reaction centers found in chloroplasts of plants and green algae. Second, the bacterial reaction center contains the bacterial chlorophyll P870, rather than P680. Excitation of P870 does not generate a sufficiently positive redox potential to oxidize water. Thus, these bacteria cannot use water as a source of electrons to reduce P870+, but rather utilize a variety of other electron donors such as hydrogen sulfide, H2S, and molecular hydrogen. 
Well, hello, chemotherms. As a consequence, these photosynthetic bacteria are restricted to environments specifically containing H2S or H2 as a source of reducing power. So that would argue for maybe not a second family tree of life, but certainly a larger branch. Since water is very abundant in our biosphere, the evolution of PACE2 allowed oxygenic photosynthetic organisms to survive and reproduce almost anywhere in our biosphere. Thus, the evolution of PS2 and its associated OEC was a major factor determining the global distribution of oxygenic photosynthetic organisms that fundamentally changed the development of all life on Earth. How interesting. The cytochrome complex and photosystem 1 oxidize plastinoquinol. Following its release from PS2, plastinoquinol diffuses laterally through the membrane until it encounters cytochrome B6F complex. This is another multiprotein membrane-spanning redox complex whose principal constituents are cytochrome B6 and cytochrome F. The cytochrome complex also contains an additional redox component called the risky iron sulfur protein. Iron binding proteins in which the iron complex is the sulfur residues rather than a heme group, as in the case of cytochrome. Plastoquinol differs within the plane of the thylakoid membrane and passes its electrons first to the FES protein and then to cytosol F. Cytochrome F. Since the oxidation of plastoquinol is thought to be diffusion limited, this is the slowest step in the phytosynthetic electron transport and occurs on a timescale of milliseconds. The risky iron sulfur protein and heme of cytochrome F are located on the luminal side of the thylakoid membrane. From site F, the electrons are picked up by a copper binding protein, plastocyanin PC. PC is a small peripheral protein that's able to diffuse freely along the luminal surface of the thylakoid membrane. In the meantime, a light-driven charge separation similar to that involving P680 has also occurred in the reaction center of PSI. Excitation energy transferred to the reaction center chlorophyll of PSI, P700, is used to change the redox potential of P700 from about plus 0.4 electron volts to about negative 0.6 electron volts for P700 star, the excited form of P700. As a consequence of this initial endergonic excitation, P700 star is rapidly photooxidized to P700 plus by the primary electron acceptor, A, in PSI, a molecule of chlorophyll A. The electron is then passed through a quinone and additional FES centers, and finally, on the stroma side of the membrane, to ferrodoxin. Ferrodoxin is another FES protein that's soluble in the stroma. Ferrodoxin in turn is used to reduce NADPH, NADP plus, a reaction mediated by the enzyme ferrodoxin NADP plus oxidoreductase. Finally, the electron deficiency in P700 plus is satisfied by withdrawing an electron from reduced PC. The overall effect of the complete electron transport scheme is to establish a continuous flow of electrons between water and NADP plus passing through two separate photosystems and intervening cytochrome complexes. The bioenergetics of this process are illustrated in figure 7.7. In the overall process, electrons are removed from water, a very weak reductant with EM of 0.82 volts, 
and elevated to the energy of ferrodoxin, a very strong reductant with EM of negative 0.42 volts. Ferrodoxin in turn reduces NAP, NADP plus to NAPDH with an electron with an EM value of negative 0.32 volts. NADPH, also a strong reductant, is a freely water-soluble mobile electron carrier that diffuses through the stroma where it's used to reduce CO2 in the carbon reduction cycle. More to follow on that. Since two excitations at PS2 and PS1 are required for each electron moved through the entire chain, a substantial amount of energy is put into the system. Based on one 680 nanometer photon and one 700 nanometer photon, 692 kilojoules are used to excite each mole pair of electrons. But what happens to the other 68% of the energy? An additional proportion of the redox-free energy of this electron transport energy is conserved as ATP. This occurs in part because transfer of electrons between PS2 and PS1 is energetically downhill, that is, it's accompanied by a negative delta G, and in the process of moving electrons between plastoquinone and the cytochrome complex, some of that energy is used to move protein, protons from the stroma side of the membrane to the lumen side. These protons contribute to a proton gradient that can be used to drive ATP synthesis by chemiosmosis. The quantum requirement for oxygen evolution is defined as the number of protons, photons required to evolve one molecule of O2. As discussed above, two excitations, one at PS2 and one at PS1, are required to move each electron through non-cyclic electron transport from H2O to NADP+. From equation 7.8, the evolution of one molecule of O2 by P680 plus generates four electrons that are eventually transferred through PSI to reduce 2NADP plus to 2NADPH, thus to transfer four electrons from H2O to NADP plus requires eight photons. Thus, the minimal theoretical quantum requirement for O2 evolution is eight photons per molecule of O2 evolved. Conversely, quantum yield of oxygen evolution is the inverse of a quantum requirement, that is, the number of molecules of O2 evolved per photon absorbed. Since this is also the definition of photosynthetic efficiency, the terms quantum yield and photosynthetic efficiency are interchangeable. Ooh, that's good to know. Consequently, the maximum theoretical quantum yield for oxygen evolution or photosynthetic efficiency of O2 evolution must be 1 eighth or 0.125 molecules of O2 evolved or photon absorbed. Photosynthetic efficiency or quantum yield for O2 evolution will vary depending on the environmental conditions to which the plant is exposed. And we'll go into more detail in chapter 13 and 14. Photophosphorylation is the light-dependent synthesis of ATP. In Chapter 5, we examined the bioenergetics of the light-dependent synthesis of ATP. However, by definition, thermodynamics does not provide specific information with respect to kinetics and biochemical mechanisms. Here, we discuss the molecular basis underlying the chemiosmotic synthesis of ATP and chloroplasts. 
The ATP required for carbon reduction and other metabolic activities of the chloroplast is synthesized by the photophosphorylation in accordance with Mitchell's chemiosmotic mechanism. Light-driven production of ATP by chloroplast is known as photophosphorylation. Photophosphorylation is very important because in addition to using ATP along with NADPH for the reduction of CO2, a continual supply of ATP is required to support a variety of other metabolic activities in the chloroplast. These activities include amino acid, fatty acid, and starch biosynthesis, the synthesis of proteins in the stroma, and the transport of proteins and metabolites across the envelope of membrane. When electron transport is operating according to the scheme shown in figures 7, 6, and 7, 7, that's the one we just talked about, Electrons are continuously supplied from water and withdrawn as NADPH. This flow-through form of electron transport is consequently known as either non-cyclic or linear electron transport. Formation of ATP in association with non-cyclic electron transport is known as non-cyclic photophosphorylation. However, as will be shown later, PSI units and PSI2 units in the membrane are not physically linked as implied by disease scheme but are even segregated into different regions of the thylakoid. One consequence of this heterogeneous distribution in the membranes is that PSI units may transport electrons independently of PS2, a process known as cyclic electron transport. In terrestrial plants, the major pathway for PSI of cyclic electron transport is thought to occur via P700 to ferredoxin which transfers the electrons back to PQ via a recently discovered protein, PGR5, rather than to NADP+. The electron then returns to P700+, passing through the cytochrome B6F complex and plastocyanin. Using a genetic approach to Aridopsis thaliana, a little mustard plant, the gene, PGR5, was shown to encode a small thylakoid polypeptide that is essential for PS1 cyclic electron transport. However, the precise role of PGR5 in electron transfer process through PQ and the cytochrome complex, cyclic and electron transport will also contribute to the establishment of the pH gradient required to support ATP synthesis, a process known as cyclic photophorylization, photophosphorylization. It's thought that cyclic photophosphorylization is a source of ATP required for chloroplast activities over and above that required in carbon reduction cycle. Since non-cyclic photophosphorylization results in the production of both ATP and NADPH, where cyclic photophosphorylization does not generate NADPH, switching between cyclic and non-cyclic photophosphorylization also represents a mechanism by which the chloroplast can regulate the stromal ATP NADPH ratios, which is important in the maintenance of chloroplast metabolic activity. A key to energy conservation in photosynthetic electron transport and the accompanying production of ATP is the light-driven accumulation of protons in the lumen. There are two principal mechanisms that account for this accumulation of protons, the oxidation of water, in which two protons are deposited into the lumen for each water molecule oxidized, and a PQ cytochrome proton pump. The energy of the resulting proton gradient is then used to drive ATP synthesis in accordance with Mitchell's chemiosmotic hypothesis. We address that in Chapter 5.
The precise mechanism by which protons are moved across the membrane by cytochrome complex is not yet understood, although several models have been proposed. The most widely accepted model is known as the Q-cycle, based on an original proposal by Mitchell. A simplified version of the Q-cycle during steady-state operation is shown in figure 7.10. When PQ is reduced by PS2, it binds temporarily to the D1 protein, QB site, as a semiquinone after it accepts its first electron from QA. Subsequently, the QB semiquinone is converted to the fully reduced plastoquinol, PQH2, after it has accepted another electron from QA, plus two protein, protons are picked up from the surrounding stroma. PQH2 dissociates from the PS2 complex and diffuses laterally through the membrane until it encounters the luminal PQH2 binding site of the cytochrome B6F complex. There, two PKH2 2PQH2 binds sequentially and are reoxidized to PQ through semiquinone intermediate, which is PQHV, not shown. By the combined action of the risky iron sulfate proton, it's all iron sulfate, iron sulfur protein, and the low reduction potential form of cytochrome B6, LP. Concomitantly, four hydrogen are transferred to the lumen. One of the PQ molecules returns to the thylakoid PQ pool to be reduced again by PS2, while the other PQ molecule is transferred to the stromal binding site of the cytochrome P6F complex, where it becomes reduced by the high reduction potential form of cytochrome B6, HP form, and is protonated using 2H plus from the stroma. This PQH2 molecule is then released from the stromal binding site and recycled into the thylakoid PQH2 pool. Thus, for each pair of electrons passing from plastoquinone through the risky FES center and cytochrome F to plastocyanine, four protons are translocated from the stroma into the lumen of the thylakoid. If this scheme is correct, then each pair of electrons passing through non-cyclic tra electron transport from water to NADP plus contributes six protons to the gradient, four from the Q cycle plus two from water oxidation. So two PQH2 reacts to form PQ complex plus PQH2 plus four hydrogen plus two electrons. Therefore, there are four hydrogens per two electrons. And water is reduced H2O to 1 half O2 plus 2H plus plus 2E. And there are then two hydrogens per two electrons. For cyclic electron transport, the number of protons transferred per pair of electrons would be four. Since it's generally agreed that three protons must be transported through the CFO to the CF1 for each ATP synthesized, or three protons per ATP, a pair of electrons passing through non-cyclic electron transport would be expected to yield two ATP molecules for every NADPH produced. Two ATP over NADPH. The precise stoichiometry, however, is difficult to determine, in part because of uncertainty with regard to the relative proportions of cyclic and non-cyclic photophosphorylation occurring at any moment in time. According to the chemiosmotic theory, PMF is equal to negative 59 delta pH plus delta... Ooh, what is that? I don't know what that is. There is a Greek symbol that I have not encountered before. I'll have to go look that up. 
As protons accumulate in the lumen relative to the stroma, divalent magnesium ions, MG2+, released from the thyroclade membrane, accumulate in the chloroplast stroma. This minimizes the difference in electrical charge between the stroma and the lumen. Thus, in chloroplasts, the change in pH, or the delta H plus concentration gradient, is the major factor that contributes to chloroplastic TNF, whereas the Greek letter that I don't know <laughs> contributes minimally. Isn't that interesting? So we don't actually know how this happens? Like, we can guess at the pathways, but the, the stoichiometry is incomplete, and there's some energy that may be drifting off somewhere, and I just think that's so cool. So this is a bit of a long chapter. Um, and there are a number of cool, like, little side hustles here. So the first is the historical basis for the development of photosynthetic uh, theory, or chemiosmotic theory. And then the other one is the case for two photosystems, which goes into uh, the Z scheme that was referenced earlier, which is a type... So this is looking at the biological imperative for the evolution of photosystem 1 and photosystem 2 working both together and apart. And we may go into that. I don't know. I'll see how my voice is doing. Um, but yeah, this is going to be a little bit of a, a little bit of a haul. So I apologize for anybody who's not super strong on plant physiology. We may have to go and do um, a little bit of a review on what a thylakoid membrane is and kind of some of the basics of stroma and luma. Because I haven't looked at those for a while either. Okay, cyanobacteria are oxygenic. So remember, this is tying back into our vacuolose smell and the development of Earth's biosphere and how plants are kind of laying the foundation for our atmosphere, for our, our recycling, our biogeochemical cycling processes. So that's why we care about this. In contrast to photosynthetic bacteria, cyanobacteria are a large and diverse group of prokaryotes which perform oxygenic photosynthesis because they exhibit PS1 as well as PS2 with its associated OEC and an intersystem electron transport chain capable, comparable to that of eukaryotic photoautotrophs, which is why we're so interested, right? Because there's a lot of our cellular structure that looks very similar to cyanobacterial structure and mitochondrial structure, which looks very similar to a lot of cyanobacterial structure. We're talking about energy and we're talking about waste products that define ecosystems here. However, in contrast to the intrinsic major light harvesting pigment protein complexes found in chloroplast, excuse me, in chloroplast thylakoid membranes of plants and green algae, the light harvesting complex of cyanobacteria is an extrinsic pigment protein complex called a phycobilosome, which is bound to the outer cytoplasmic surface of cyanobacterial thylakoids. So here you have this cool bridge between plants and animals, right? So you have bacteria that are the basis of plants and bacteria that will be the basis for eukaryotes. So this is one of those, those bridges between different families that I find really interesting. Hmm. Phycobilosomes, or PBSs, are rod-shaped chromoproteins that phycobiliproteins 
called phycobiliproteins, which may constitute up to 40% of total cellular protein. The phycobiliproteins are associated with PBS and include allophycocyanin, AP, phycocosinin, PC, and phycoerythrin, PE. In addition to PBS, PS2 of cyanobacteria include the CHL, a core antenna of CP47 and CP43, similar to those found in eukaryotic organisms. Cyanobacteria are distinct from chloroplasts because the redox carriers involved in respiratory as well as photosynthetic electron transport are located in the cyanobacterial thylakoid membranes where they share a common PQ pool and a common CTB6F complex. Because PBSs are large extrinsic pigment protein complexes, this prevents oppression of cyanobacterial thylakoid membranes and the formation of granal stacks, granal stacks, characteristics of eukaryotic chloroplasts. That's right, eukaryotic chloroplasts. This is further evidence that granal stacks are not a prerequisite for oxygenic photosynthesis. Okay, so we're about to get into some organic chemistry. And I don't think that I can describe the shapes of some of these molecules very well. But we're going to talk about herbicides. And herbicides are very important because we have a lot in common with plants in some of these regards. So inhibitors of photosynthetic electron transport are effective herbicides. Since the dawn of agriculture, man has waged war against weeds. Weeds compete with crop species for water, nutrients, and light and ultimately reduce crop yields. Traditional methods of weed control, such as crop rotation, manual hoeing, or tractor-drawn cultivators, were largely replaced in the 1940s by labor-saving chemical weed control. Modern agriculture is almost completely dependent upon the intensive use of herbicides and pesticides, but we're not doing insect ecology right now. A wide spectrum of herbicides is now available that interfere with a variety of cell functions. Many of the commercially more important herbicides, however, act by interfering with photosynthetic electron transport. Two major classes of such herbicides are derivatives of urea, such as monouron and diuron, and the triazine herbicides, triazine and cimazine. Both the urea and the triazine herbicides are taken up by the roots and transported to the leaves. There they bind to the QB binding site of the D1 protein in PS2, also known as the herbicide binding protein. The herbicide interferes with the binding of plastoquinone to the same site and thus blocks the transfer of electrons to plastoquinone. Because of its action in blocking electron transport at this point, ZCMU is commonly used in laboratory experiments where the investigator wishes to block electron transport between PS2 and PS1. The triazine herbicides are used extensively to control weeds in cornfields, since corn roots contain an enzyme that degrades the herbicide to an inactive form. Other plants are also resistant. Some, such as cotton, sequester the herbicide in special glands, while others avoid taking it up by way of root systems that penetrate deep below the application zone. In many cases, however, weeds have developed triazine-resistant races or biotypes. In several cases, the resistance has been traced to a single amino acid substitution in the D1 protein. The change in amino acid reduces the affinity of the protein for the herbicide, but does not interfere with plastoquinone binding and consequently electron transport. 
The availability of herbicide-resistant genes together with recombinant DNA technology has stimulated considerable interest in the prospects for developing additional herbicide-resistant crop plants. It is possible, for example, to transfer the genes for the altered D1 protein into crop species and confer resistance to triazine herbicides. This approach will be successful, however, only if weed species do not continue to acquire resistance to the same herbicides through natural evolutionary change, which is just ridiculous, right? That's not going to happen. I also have a problem with this because a lot of these weeds are edible. So it's not that the weeds are interfering with crop yields, it's that our version of crops tend to be very monoculture focused and very profit focused. So it's not just what can you eat and be healthy and happy, it's can you sell corn? So I think that that needs to be reflected in this argument a little bit because having a cornfield is not the same as creating actual food, you know what I mean? So when farmers talk about chemical applications and how, oh, you know, they can't create good yields and that people are going to starve and everything. Well, they, they're probably going to starve, but they're not going to starve because we can't grow food. They're going to starve because we can't grow corn, right? There's, that's the difference. And a lot of these herbicides are getting blown onto other farmers' fields. So, you know, if your buddy is, is growing corn and you're growing, I don't know, carrots, um, the carrots will die and the corn will be fine and now you're screwed, but we can still eat carrots. It's not that the carrots are a weed, right? There's just some very like big agriculture um, I, there's, there's some political comments with this that I really don't agree with and the idea of a weed well I, th I mean, a weed is just something that we haven't figured out how to use yet, right? Like, it's it's part of our ecology that we just haven't figured out how to get along with. So I do have a little bit of a problem with this. Um, another class of herbicides are the bipyridylium biologin dyes, paraquat, which act by intercepting electrons on the reducing side of PS1. The biologin dyes are auto-oxidizable, immediately reducing oxygen to superoxide. Not only do the biologin dyes interfere with photosynthetic electron transport, but the superoxide they produce causes additional damage by rapidly inactivating chlorophyll and oxidizing chloroplast membrane lipids. They blow it up with oxygen, right? So we were talking about how the internal bits of the mesophyll cells have these reflect, refract, scatter idea technologies to redirect light to prevent this oxidation. Well, these superoxidizers blow that up, right? Like they just flood the system with so much oxygen that essentially it becomes a poison, it becomes a toxin, um, and kills and kills those organs. Chemical herbicides have become an important management tool for modern agriculture, but their value as a labor-saving device must be carefully weighed against potentially harmful ecological effects. Many of these herbicides are carcinogenic, and thus the potential accumulation of these hazardous compounds in water supplies continues to be a major public health concern. In addition, the overuse of herbicides promote herbicide tolerance in weeds, which exacerbates the weed problems in the long term. Yes, <laughs> right, and these are toxic chemicals, right? So, you know, the Monsanto scare with Roundup um, causes lymphoma. So we, we have this idea that chemistry cures everything and that we'll just genetically engineer these plants to be 
you know, super soldiers, but that's not, that's not how natural evolution works. That's not how herbicides work. We share a lot of the metabolic processes that plants do. Not a lot. We share some of the key ones. And so how we are expecting to kill plants without killing part of ourselves is kind of crazy to me. And again, the obsession with weeds, like you can eat dandelions or at least the roots. So why aren't we why aren't we doing this a little bit better? Um, let's see. The photosynthetic electron transport. I lost my place. Lateral heterogeneity is dynamic and is a consequence. Electrostatic shielding of negative surface charges on thylakoid membranes created by the exposed N-terminal domains of major LHC2 polypeptides. Oops, that's the wrong one. Okay, let's just shut that down. So in summary, what did we learn today? The function of the light-dependent reactions of photosynthesis is to generate ATP and reducing potential as NADPH required for subsequent carbon reduction. The electron transport train in the thylakoid membranes of oxygenic photoautotrophs is composed of two photosystems, PS1 and PS2, and the cytochrome B6F complex. The three complexes are linked by plastoquinone and plastocyanin, mobile carriers that freely diffuse within the plane of the membrane. Each photosystem consists of a reaction center, core antenna, and light harvesting LHC complex. Light energy gathered by the antenna and LHC is passed to the reaction center. In the reaction center, electron flow is initiated by a charge separation or photooxidation. As a result, electrons obtained from the oxidation of water are passed through PS2, the cytochrome B6F complex, and PS1 to NADP+. Protons pumped across the membrane between PS2 and PS1 drive photophosphorylation. The components of the photosynthetic electron transport chain are not distributed homogeneously throughout the thylakoid membranes of eukaryotic chloroplasts, but exhibit lateral heterogeneity. However, lateral heterogeneity is dynamic and is a consequence electrostatic shielding of negative surface charges on thylakoid membranes created by exposed N-terminal domains of major LHC2 polypeptides. Granal stacks are not an absolute requirement for oxygenic photosynthesis. Although cyanobacteria exhibit PS1, PS2, and are oxygenic, thylakoids of these prokaryotes do not exhibit granal stacks due to the presence of extrinsic pigment protein complexes called phycobilisomes. In contrast to eukaryotic photosynthetic organisms and cyanobacteria, photosynthetic bacteria contain only one specialized bacterial reaction center that oxidizes H2S or H2 and is incapable of oxidizing H2O. Several classes of economically important herbicides act by interfering with photosynthetic electron transport. Okay, so let's do a little review here. Number one, ATP formation in chloroplasts is based on the stepwise conservation of energy. Trace the conservation of energy from the initial absorption of light by an antenna chlorophyll molecule to the final formation of a molecule of ATP. Well, we've got thylakoid membranes with two photosystems. So the light comes in and hits PSI, PS1, or PS2, and that is captured using a manganese crystal. Is the water, it's combined with water, and water gets split apart to create this uh, proton and an electron gradient, and that's passed to this cytochrome B6F complex. 
using a plastoquinone or a plastocyanin, and that's part of a reaction center. So the light energy gathered by the light harvesting center is passed to the reaction center. And in the reaction center, you get photooxidation from the water. The electrons are passed to the PS2. If they hit PS1, they get passed to PS2. They can also be cycled into a PS1 cyclic reaction, but let's pretend that they go to PS2. And again, that cytochrome B6F complex splits it apart and sends um, some protons down to the lumen side and grabs some electrons for some conservation of energy to chuck it over to NADPH plus. I'm sorry, NADP plus. The extra protons that got split off of the water and the molecules get pumped across the membrane between PS1 and PS2, and then those combine with your ATP to generate, I'm sorry, NADPH to generate ATP at the end of the day. Describe the concept of a photosystem and how it is involved in converting light energy to chemical energy. Well, light energy is kind of useless, right? We have to be able to split off. We've got to use something else to convert light into something material. So we've got to collapse the wave function, right? And water is the way we do that. So water provides the enzymes the ability to capture the electron or the photon, put that energy against something, splitting the water into hydrogen and an electron, and then that quantized energy in the electron is usable. So the, the interaction of light with water to split the molecule is what's actually the chemical transition. And then once you get it into hydrogens and electrons, well that's that proton gradient is what you can tack on to the phosphorylation portion to create energy, and the electron is what can power the little enzymes and what can actually go into to, um, creating new compounds. So that's what creates the reduction reaction is this interaction with hydrogen and electrons, which is facilitated by water. Explain the difference between cyclic and non-cyclic electron transport. How can non-cyclic photosynthetic electron transport function if the PS2 and PS1 units are located in different regions of the thylakoid membrane? Well, they can work apart or they can work together. So if it hits a PS1, PS1 can just run cyclic photophosphorylation or it can pass the energy to a PS2 to create ATP. So if you want to get the maximum energy, you work together, PS1 to PS2. If you want to just create energy, if you just want to create like those banked electrons, then just run the PS1, and then those electrons can be transferred under a gradient through the, through the membrane of the leaf. Because remember, those, the cytochromes are free-flowing. They can move around. So PS1 can just generate all those happy electrons and proteins, and then the cytochromes can snap them up and complex them with the FES or whatever they're working with to store them until they move to a PS2 where they can be processed and generated as ATP. Or it can hit the PS2 and it can just be generated as ATP, right? So you have both the light harvesting under low light conditions, which then can be stored and passed to energy production, or you can just be producing energy under either one under light saturated conditions. Uh, 
how is lateral heterogeneity regulated? Um, level of light, right? So if you have a lot of light, doesn't matter where the where the thylakoids are. It doesn't matter where your energy goes because you're going to be saturated so you can basically grab electrons from anywhere. If you're in low light, well, that's when you need to work together. So that's when you can have these light-collecting systems that pass electrons through these complicated chains because you don't have enough to waste, right? It's not like you, you're going to need to store up lots of energy and then you're going to need to pass it to the LH2 and PS2 to be able to create ATP. Explain the difference between oxygenic and pho oxygenic photosynthesis and anoxygenic photosynthesis. What role did the evolution of oxygenic photosynthesis play in the global distribution of photosynthetic organisms? Well, this goes back to SNIL, right? So you've got oxygenic photosynthesis, which is based off of a cyanobacteria or green algae, and that's got the PS1 and PS2 system very efficient, like 10%, right? And that's using water to take light and split it. And water is very, very common on our Earth. So that's why we have this reliance on water as the chemical translator between light and chemistry, chemiosmosis, right? But if you are in a place where water is not common, or if you are a, an organism that doesn't get light, like the uh, cool chemotherms under the ocean, well, then that's not going to work for you, right? So the anoxygenic photosynthesis doesn't use water. So there is no oxygen to be you know, created as a byproduct in this, in this split. Instead, they use hydrogen sulfide. So the, this prevalent chemical doesn't get, you don't need to split oxygen off of it. So you don't create the waste product. You can just use the sulfur reducing and the proton pump to be able to create a type of photosynthesis that doesn't necessarily, like you're gonna need an energy source, but I don't think that you necessarily need all of the light action of it because you can just use the sulfur. But more common is water with light. And so of course that's gonna be producing this oxygen waste product, which then defines our atmosphere. What is LC, LHC2 and where is it localized? And what are phycobilosomes and where are they located? It's uh, a great question. I don't know. Okay, so LH2 can be located kind of anywhere, right? So it's a non-heterogeneous, it's a non-homogeneous distribution, but it's always located next to um, PS2. So if you have a PS2, you're going to have an LHC2. And within that PS2, you're going to have a CP47, a CP43. You're going to have a D2 and a D1 enzyme. Um, you're going to have a whole bunch of other little goodies. The phycobilis. I don't know about phycobilin. Hmm. I don't know about that one. Okay, so phycobilosomes are rod-shaped chromoproteins. 
usually associated with PS2. Okay. So they're all around PS2. That's cool. Okay, that was easy. Um, the herbicide DCMU is commonly used in laboratory investigations of electron transport reactions in isolated chloroplasts. Can you suggest why DCMU might be useful for such studies? Well, I think they tell us, right, that it shuts down PS2, and that's how we were able to identify the different applications for PS1 versus PS2. Yeah, so um, here it is. DCMU is used when the investigator wishes to block electron transport between PS2 and PS1. So here we're looking at um, cyclic versus non-cyclic photophosphorylation. Because if P1 can't communicate with P2, then P2 is the ATP synthesis um, protein aggregate, well then what does P1 do? And that's where we got the idea of cyclic, where it just keeps generating the electrons, which then can be stored in these manganese crystals, I guess. I don't think they're actually crystals, but manganese can take up um, and quench like the additional oxygen species and retain the electrons for future pass-through um, with cytochrome. So it can do it itself. And then you can pass those electrons back up and whatever. So it can just keep generating those electrons in the proton gradients. They can then get passed through into the proton pump or to PS2 to facilitate ATP production. Okay, all done. Good job, everybody.